0: I deserve to have a life. I've worked my whole life. I deserve to have a two to three year break and just, you know, do what I want to do. But I do feel like there is a crunch here. And I feel like um, I feel open and I'm okay to talk to you today about it. But I, I wish I could stay with you on the phone forever. Because when I get off the phone with you, all of a sudden, all of I hear, I hear all these no's No, no, no. And then all of a sudden I get, I feel ganged up on and I feel bullied and I feel left out and alone and I'm tired of feeling alone. I deserve to have the same rights as anybody does by having a child, a family, any of those things. Once you see someone, whoever it is in the conservatorship, making money, making them money and myself money and working That whole, that whole statement right there, the conservatorship should end. There should be no, I shouldn't be in a conservatorship if I can work and provide money and work for myself and pay other people. It makes no sense. The laws need to change. What state allows people to own another person's money and account and threaten them and saying, you can't spend your money unless you do what we want you to do and I'm paying them. Ma'am, I've worked since I was 17 years old. You have to understand how thin that is for me. Every morning I get up to know I can't go on somewhere unless I meet people I don't know every week in an office identical to the one where the therapist was very abusive to me. I truly believe this conservatorship is abusive. And now we can sit here all day and say, oh, conservatorships are here to help people. But ma'am, there's a thousand conservatorships that are abusive as well. In the
1: year 2008, After facing an onslaught of public scrutiny that both documented and exacerbated her ongoing mental health struggles, Britney Spears was placed into a legal guardianship in the state of California called a conservatorship, established by a California probate court and Britney's own father, Jamie Spears, along with his team of attorneys. You probably don't need me to tell you that. In the last few years, Britney's legal battle has become a well-covered topic first online through social media and the hashtag Free Britney movement, then on more conventional platforms as well. Most significantly, the New York Times released their first of two documentaries on Britney's conservatorship called Framing Britney Spears in February of 2021. They would release a follow up a few months later, the far superior but unfortunately less discussed controlling Britney Spears, while other outlets like CNN, the BBC, and Netflix all jumped on the Free Britney bandwagon after. The Free Britney movement itself was a grassroots campaign led by Britney Spears fans who had been suspicious of Britney's legal arrangement since pretty much it started. While Britney had the legal rights of a child, She spent the first 11 years of her life post-conservatorship producing albums, selling out world tours or shows of her Vegas residency, making guest appearances on TV shows, selling perfume, lingerie, a mobile app, and more. Professionally, Britney was as triumphant as she'd ever been. Privately, she was struggling against her father for control of her life. In 2019, after allegations that Britney had been placed into a mental health facility against her will became public, her fans took action not only flooding social media with the Free Britney hashtag, but literally taking to the streets to protest the perceived injustice.
2: All right, guys,
3: what do we want? Free Britney! When do we want it? What do we want? Free Britney! When do we want it?
1: Those protests took place in California where I do not live and am too poor to buy a plane ticket to visit, but I was an active member of the Free Britney movement for years. My name is Jasmine, and this is the Medusini Podcast. Since 2019, I've also run a blog named Medusini, which you can find at Medusini.com. and the oldest content on my site is a blog post titled A Brief Guide to the Free Britney Movement, which I published in September of 2019. Since then, I've pretty regularly updated my blog with Free Britney-related content, and though I can't say I'm an expert in the topic of conservatorships, my relentless fascination with Britney Spears absolutely made me more inclined to research the subject and educate myself on the issue of conservatorship abuse. I'm not the only one. Since Free Britney's mainstream breakthrough, awareness about flaws embedded in the country's adult guardianship process has increased dramatically. Even Congress is crediting Britney Spears with rousing bipartisan support for conservatorship reform.
4: This is an important topic, and I welcome each of the witnesses uh, for attending and testifying. Every so often, an individual case of injustice captures the nation's attention, and it opens our eyes to issues that are by no means unique to that individual, but that previously had remained hidden from the public. That's what has happened with Britney Spears one of the most iconic American pop stars of all time, who has been under a California conservatorship since 2008. The case has captured the attention of the world, and I myself count myself emphatically in the Free Britney camp.
1: That was enemy of the show Senator Ted Cruz. I don't care how emphatically he considers himself in the Free Britney camp. I will not be tricked into liking that man. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, but at least I've never heard of a clock trying to keep someone in prison for 16 years for stealing a calculator. Maybe you should think about some other people's freedom, Theodore. Anyway, Britney Spears helped put a spotlight on the issue of conservatorship abuse, largely due to her celebrity status. But Britney Spears isn't the only celebrity that's ever been in a conservatorship or some other form of legal adult guardianship. Since I've spent a lot of time doing amateur research into this topic, I want to look at other celebrities who are now or at some point have been in guardianships of their own. Not because celebrity cases matter more than those of the non-famous, but because the publicity of their cases can be used as representations of a larger issue. Like Brittany said in the testimony that played at the beginning of the episode, there are thousands of abusive conservatorships. We should put an asterisk by that claim, though. At the moment, we don't have clear enough data to say for sure how many conservatorships are currently active in the U.S., let alone how many of those are abusive. The National Council on Disability estimated in 2021 that there are about 1.3 million people in conservatorships or guardianships across the country, but that's just an estimate, and it's an estimate based on the 16 out of 50 states that were able to provide reliable data. 1.3 million people is still a lot though. To put it into perspective, when I looked at the number of adults counted in the 2020 census, That means that about 1 out of every 200 adult Americans is in a guardianship. That's only a little bit less than the amount of Americans under incarceration. And America loves incarcerating people. It's like one of the things that we're known for, along with our for-profit healthcare system, which isn't totally irrelevant to the issue of guardianship abuse, but I do digress. Now, before we go any further, I should stress that not all guardianships are abusive or bad. We'll see examples later, in fact, of ones that appear to have been beneficial to their wards. The thing I do want to stress about this issue is that every case is unique, and there's maybe an alarming amount of uniqueness within the probate courts that oversee them. So, let's start with some basic information. An adult guardianship is a legal arrangement in which an adult is deemed by a court to be incapable of making basic decisions regarding their own life. This can be due to a mental or physical disability, a severe physical or mental illness, or any or all of the above. They will then have another adult appointed to their care that will oversee their daily decisions. A ward can either have a guardianship of the person, meaning their guardian makes decisions regarding their day-to-day life, including their medical care, place of residence, food in their house, and whatever else. Or, they can have a guardianship of the estate, in which a guardian will specifically make decisions regarding their finances and accounting. Many wards have both, as Britney Spears did, but it is possible to only have one. To be honest, I am a little skeptical of the idea of only having a guardianship of the estate and not of the person. I don't know what would qualify someone to only be incapacitated in relation to their finances and not need any assistance with the rest of their daily life. But maybe I just don't know the issue well enough to understand the benefit of that particular circumstance. Typically, the ward of a guardianship is older around retirement age, which is why the issue of guardianship abuse is strongly related to the broader topic of elder abuse. Any adult, though, can be put into a guardianship if a court decides they're incapable of making decisions. Britney Spears, for example, was 26 when placed into her guardianship, which is actually the age I am now, even if my voice makes me sound like a 12 year old. You might have noticed though that I've been switching between using the words conservatorship and guardianship a lot. Do those things mean the same thing? Kind of, but also kind of not. Conservatorship is the more buzzworthy term right now because of the Free Britney movement, but Britney's case took place in California, and California is the only state that uses conservatorship to refer to all forms of adult guardianships. Many other states say guardianship overall, but quite a lot use the term guardianship to refer to the guardianship of the person, while conservatorship refers to the guardianship of the estate. With the exception of one, every case we'll talk about today is a conservatorship because they're all celebrities and celebrities often live in California. But if you hear those terms referenced outside of this podcast and they appear to mean separate things, that's why. But this actually hits on a primary concern for guardianship reform. Like all states don't agree on what to call these arrangements, They don't agree on how they should work and who should qualify to be in them either. There is no federal regulation for guardianships, and sometimes there's not a lot of guidance from states, so much of the decision making comes down to individuals within separate probate courts. There is often little training for employees of the court for how to handle these situations, especially what the process should be if abuse is discovered within a guardianship. And courts across the country don't have an established standard for how to code their cases, which is why only 16 states can provide reliable data for how many cases they have opened. Some courts don't record when they've closed a case, and they don't do proper follow-up for the cases they still have going. Most concerningly though, how easy it is to establish these arrangements differs widely across the country. You could qualify for a guardianship in one court, but then not in another just a few miles away. For example, There are only three states where isolated incidents are considered insufficient grounds for a conservatorship, so if you had a severe mental breakdown, even if it was just one breakdown in your entire life, but you don't live in California, Idaho, or New Hampshire, you could theoretically be placed into a guardianship. In 2021, the Journal of Financial Service Professionals gave a breakdown of what standard of proof is used to establish a guardianship across the different states. Most states use by clear and convincing evidence, which means that the petitioner for a guardianship must present evidence that leaves a reasonable spectator with a firm belief that it is highly probable that the potential ward is incapacitated. Some states use by a ponderance of the evidence, which means that the petitioner provides evidence indicating that there's a greater than 50% chance that the potential ward is incapacitated. Only one state uses beyond a reasonable doubt, which means that there is no reasonable evidence to disprove that the potential ward is incapacitated. They are absolutely, and obviously, unable to take care of themselves. This is the burden of proof that's used in criminal cases because, our kink for incarceration aside, we as Americans generally acknowledge that sending someone to prison is a serious impedance on their rights. We want to be absolutely sure that someone committed a crime before we sentence them ideally. Guardianships have the potential to restrict someone's rights even more so than a prison sentence, and yet only New Hampshire treats these arrangements with the same burden of proof as criminal cases. And that's not good. Now, to help us get deeper into the weeds, we're gonna start looking at specific examples of celebrity cases, but before we do that, I want to make a few disclaimers. First, be aware that I don't know what I'm talking about. I've done a lot of research into this topic and I've extracted all the information I've deemed relevant and reliable, but I am just a girl. These kinds of arrangements are matters of both legal rights and proceedings as well as medical health care, neither of which are things that I am any expert in. The only thing that I'm an expert in is being myself, and sometimes myself is dumb. I'll link all of my major sources in the show notes, but don't rely on me as your sole source for anything, and that goes beyond just this episode. Also note that this is a rapidly evolving topic, so I can't guarantee that all of my sources are up to date on current laws. According to AmericanBar.org in 2018, so even this statement was from four years ago, since 2011 states have enacted approximately 270 adult guardianship bills ranging from a complete revamp of code provisions to minor changes in procedure. So these laws change on, like, a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Our second disclaimer is I'm going to be discussing six celebrity cases with a varying amount of depth. There are more celebrities who could be included in this conversation that I'm not mentioning, because this episode's already going to be hella long. And obviously, there's over a million people in guardianships across the U.S., So this is a teeny tiny look at an issue that affects an unknown number of people. And even in the situations I'm discussing, I'm only looking at the cases from the outside. I will try not to be irresponsibly speculative, and I'll call out some of the talking points around certain cases that I find problematic, but everything that I say should be taken with a grain of salt because I'm not a part of these people's lives so I don't know what's going on within them. And one final thing before we get started, I should issue a light trigger warning. This episode will obviously talk about topics related to abuse, especially elder abuse and anything related to mental health and mental illness. It's not going to be too dark and detailed, but those things do come up, so proceed accordingly. With that, let's get into our first case, that of Nichelle Nichols. The former star of some old TV show. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I guess it's called Star Trek?
5: Space, a final frontier.
4: These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before.
1: With her leading role as Lieutenant Ahura, Nichelle became a pioneer for black women in television and film, being one of the first black actors ever to play a non menial role on American TV. Her on screen kiss with William Shatner, a white man, is often cited as the first interracial kiss on American TV, and since I'm an asshole who always has to be right, I'm gonna point out that it wasn't actually the first interracial kiss. It wasn't even the first to include William Shatner. There are a handful of others that came before it. Not all including William Shatner, but you know what I mean. But if no one remembers the other and they do remember the kiss on Star Trek, it might as well be the first because it was obviously the most groundbreaking. The director of that episode was actually upset when William Shatner kissed Nichelle Nichols during the first take of the scene because NBC executives didn't think the interracial kiss would play well. He tried to get the two to do another take without the kiss, but they, specifically William Shatner, intentionally messed up every take after, so they'd be forced to keep the original. I've heard before that William Shatner is a dick, but that was pretty cool of him. He's not an enemy of the show, for now. Along with her work on television, Shell has been an inspiration to women and people of color in STEM after she became a recruiter for NASA following her Star Trek fame. Hi,
6: I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th-century enterprise. An actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration.
1: Unfortunately, in January of 2013, Nichelle was hospitalized for pancreatitis and taken to an assisted living facility shortly after. Nichelle was also diagnosed with dementia, Now I want to give a quick note about dementia and guardianship cases. We obviously don't have statistics for what diagnoses are most common within guardianships, but it is likely dementia. Firstly, because dementia is an illness that will eventually push a patient into requiring some amount of assistance, though often not an arrangement as severe as a guardianship, Still. As patients move through the different stages of dementia, their own abilities will become increasingly restricted. The second reason is because dementia is a really good diagnosis if a petitioning guardian wants to keep their word within that arrangement for the rest of their life, because the disease is progressive. You could be put under a guardianship for schizophrenia, but with treatment, your symptoms could become more or less manageable with time to the point where you could petition the court and say that your abilities have improved and the guardianship is no longer necessary. With dementia, though, once a court has already decided you're incapacitated, it's gonna be really hard for you to argue that that is no longer the case because your symptoms are just going to get worse. And while you need a doctor's diagnosis to get a conservatorship approved, the entire process for enacting a guardianship, including what doctor's opinions are considered by a judge, is very inconsistent across courts. Take for example, the long legal battle of a retired engineer in Florida named Douglas Keegan. Who was diagnosed and placed into a guardianship without being able to appear in court himself because his petitioning guardian said he was too incapacitated to understand court proceedings. His guardian, by the way, sold Douglas's condo and forced him to move into an extended stay America, a hotel chain that I worked at when I was eighteen and the hotel that I worked in had only one working vacuum for all the housekeepers to share and never had enough towels for every room. Douglas, a supposedly severely incapacitated man, lived in that hotel room by himself completely unsupervised. This report is from ABC Action News.
3: Well, Dr. Sieg, who is a psychiatrist, in other words, he's a medical doctor, determined that he had frontal lobe dementia.
5: That was in 2015. The Mayo Clinic says doctors should use blood tests, sleep studies and brain scans to diagnose frontal lobe dementia. But Dr. Sieg's report doesn't indicate he did any of that. What kind of test did he do to to see that that Mr. Keegan had this? You know,
3: I, I do not know, but I know that they they usually the psychiatrist usually reviews all his medical
5: history, Okay. Dr. C's report says he didn't talk to Keegan's regular doctor. That diagnosis was very suspect based only on a very cursory examination. Retired internal medicine doctor Sam Sugar founded Americans against abusive probate guardianships and has known Keegan for three years.
4: There's no evidence now that he suffers from any kind of dementia.
5: Judge App signed an order allowing Keegan to be evaluated by a psychiatrist from Boca Raton that doctor determined Keegan had full capacity. Attorney Fletcher objected to not being properly notified and got a hearing with a different judge who overturned the doctor's appointment and appointed the Dr. Fletcher recommended to evaluate Keegan.
2: They're contesting the doctor's report because he didn't get, uh, he didn't get evaluated by the doctor they wanted him to be evaluated by.
4: And if the judge rejects it out of hand because he's not on some list, I think that tells you
3: everything you need to know.
1: Britney Spears was also supposedly diagnosed with dementia in 2008 at 26, which is a very uncommon age for that kind of diagnosis, though not impossible. But she then spent the following 11 years performing complex choreography on stage without any noticeable decay in her abilities. I don't bring this up to disqualify Nichelle Nichols' diagnosis, she is at an age in which the appearance of dementia symptoms wouldn't be uncommon, and others have reported her experiencing some short-term memory loss, which could be an early symptom. I just want to emphasize that wrongful diagnoses in guardianship cases do occasionally happen, and it's something we should be aware of. While I don't doubt Nichelle's diagnosis, Michelle's close friend Angelique Fawcett has voiced some suspicions, along with her criticism of the facility Michelle's family made her stay in in 2013.
7: I don't usually like to share the story about the hospital and the pancreatitis, but I guess I
6: just—it's
7: mm-hmm. so odd that it happened. But so anyway, we go to the rest home, and uh, you know, there's urine underneath her bed, and it wasn't hers. It absolutely was not hers. I checked. We go out into the hallway, and I tell the nurse, "Look, there's urine underneath this bed. Can you please get this up? I don't want my friend laying in the—you know, she wasn't laying in it, but it was underneath the bed." She said, "Of course." So we go out into the hallway, and Nichelle is grasping my hands at Steve's hand. Steve's my husband, saying, "You know, you know, why am I here? Why is why aren't why can't I go home? Why aren't they letting me go home?" And she says, "I want to get out of here. Please help me." And I'm like, Nichelle, we." Uh, we know you want to go home, but I can't do anything about that. Cause I'm not a family member. You know, I gladly take you home, but I can't. And I said, but I will check with, you know, the front desk to see what, what the situation was. I asked to speak to the doctor. I speak to her on the phone. And she tells me that Nichelle's family in 2013, when Nichelle Nichols had no memory issues, she just had pancreatitis that they were going to put her in a rest home permanently. She was diagnosed by that same doctor of having dementia. And that was a non gerontologist. That's why I went to court because this doctor didn't even have the license to diagnose her with dementia. And I can tell you as a witness, Michelle did not have did not have dementia. Michelle was as clear as day. There is a video um, that you can look on on Mm -hmm. YouTube. It's called Michelle's own words. That's the video that Michelle asked me to make of her. That's her getting out of the hospital. That's the day that she escaped. The host, the, I'm sorry, that's the day she escaped the rest home. Does she sound like, she, you know, I mean, like anyone could look at it and ask themselves, does she sound like she has dementia or even look like she has dementia?
1: I'll push back on Angelique a little bit here and say that just looking at Nichelle, especially in select moments, can't prove whether or not she has dementia or really any mental disability or illness. If Nichelle was diagnosed at an early stage, Her symptoms might not be super obvious, especially while they're still mostly episodic. She could be fine one moment and not fine the next, so we should take that into consideration, but I will play the video Angelique mentions of Nichelle in her own words because she makes a few statements about her wants for the future and her son Kyle Johnson that are relevant.
6: It's funny that my son, who works his little tail off with, <laughs> in his work, uh, thinks that, that I should be um, letting up, you know. Um, and I said, I say to him, Kyle, when you pay my bills, you'll be able to tell me what to do. You don't pay my bills. And he says, well, if you didn't travel so much or something like that, you shouldn't be. And I said, you can't tell me what I can and cannot be as a human being. I think he still still really doesn't understand. And there are a few other people who think I should be, I don't know, do housework or something that that fits my age. Mm -hmm. Well, I said, when you pay all my bills, and all my luxuries of my, that I have enjoyed in life, maybe I'll let you say one thing in my life, but you don't pay for my life. You don't own me and I don't try to own you.
1: So Gilbert Bell, Nichelle's manager at the time, was the person who helped her break out of the assisted living facility? Immediately after that, Nichelle signed documents establishing Gill as her primary agent for a power of attorney agreement, and then Angelique Fawcett was named as the secondary agent. Now, a durable power of attorney agreement is a very useful alternative to guardianships, and it's kind of similar to, like, a supportive decision-making plan, Basically, what it is, is someone signs an agreement appointing someone they trust to make key decisions in their life in an event in which they're incapacitated. Unlike in a guardianship where a guardian is in control of their ward's decisions as long as the guardianship is in place, the person appointed under a power of attorney agreement would only act on decisions in specific moments in which the incapacitated person cannot themselves. So if you have an illness in which your symptoms are extremely episodic, they come and they go, that's beneficial to you so you can maintain your individual rights when you're doing well, or if you have something like dementia where your symptoms are going to progress over time and you need to make a plan for future incapacities. The main reason a guardianship would be used instead of a power of attorney or supportive decision-making plan is that both of those arrangements require some amount of cooperation from the incapacitated person, but sometimes the reason someone doesn't want to agree to assistance is directly caused by the symptoms of their mental illness or disability. So like, if you are experiencing psychosis, so you have a complete break from reality, If you are really paranoid and you believe that people who are helping you are actually trying to harm you. Or if you have something like substance abuse disorder where you have a physical dependency on substances that stopped you from getting treatment you would otherwise be seeking. There's also something called anosognosia, which is a condition in which a patient lacks awareness of their illness and it's caused by damage done to the brain by the disease process. It's reported to affect approximately 50% of individuals with schizophrenia and 40% of individuals with bipolar disorder. The condition is also common among stroke victims, people with dementia, or people with PTSD. But if you want to avoid being put into a guardianship in the future, I suggest having a plan like a durable power of attorney agreement in place as soon as possible. But results are not guaranteed. If someone argues that you were already incapacitated when signing any estate planning, a court can overturn your decision, especially if it's decided that you were vulnerable to undue influence. Many states, including California, specifically look at vulnerability to undue influence as a contributing factor to the creation of a conservatorship, and Nichelle Nichols' family very much did not like Gilbert Bell. They accused Gilbert of transferring ownership of Nichelle's house to himself, removing her from medical care, i.e. the assisted living situation. They said he stole possessions from her home, overscheduled her for appearances, which as her manager, he also got a cut from, and they said he isolated her from her family and turned her against them. Michelle's family weren't the only people that didn't seem to like Gil. According to the LA Times, Angelique described him as Nichelle's gatekeeper, saying, I never really liked the guy. I had to deal with him in order to see my friend. As she witnessed Nichelle losing control of her life and being increasingly taken advantage of by those around her, she reached out to Nichelle's family and said, it was just getting to be too much where the family was not intervening in the manner in which they should but intervene, one of them eventually did. In May of 2018, Kyle Johnson, Nichelle's son, filed for petition for conservatorship over his mother. Angelique in particular challenged this in court to no avail, saying Kyle was only interested in Nichelle's income and personal property, But Kyle was granted temporary conservatorship alongside a team of attorneys and accountants in 2018. Then in 2019, the conservatorship was made permanent, with Kyle acting as conservator of Nichelle's person and estate. This is a good time to mention that across the US, basically anyone can file for guardianship over someone as long as they're over the age of 18. Except for in Colorado, for some reason, where you have to be 21 or over, but standards outside of that are pretty much non-existent. A 2018 paper from the National Center for State Courts said that approximately 20 states require a background check for criminal history in order to be a guardian, which means that approximately 30 states do not. There's two main categories that a guardian can fall into, professional or loved one. Professionals are pretty self-explanatory, they make overseeing guardianships their job, and sometimes have hundreds of wards within their care. Not always in the same state, which makes abuse a lot harder to stop since probate courts aren't really in great communication with one another. You could be found guilty of guardianship abuse in one court, but keep all of your wards within a different court's jurisdiction, because the first court probably isn't even aware that you have other wards in different areas. Some courts require a license or certificate to be a guardian, but many do not. There are also two main types of professional guardians, one being a private guardian and the other being public meaning they work for the state and take on any case in which another suitable guardian cannot be found for a patient. Then there are family members and other loved ones, which in many courts make up a majority of appointed guardians, as many judges find the arrangement preferable to those involving a stranger, and there's pros and cons to that. There's an assumption that a family member or loved one will take better care of their ward and not be trying to exploit them or their estate, but that's not necessarily true. We all have at least one shitty family member that would sell us out in a second for the right price, and remember that in most cases where a child is appointed the guardian of their parent, the child may have some incentive regarding their parent's estate If they're to be the beneficiary of their estate after their parent's death, some asshole kid that knows all their parent's money is eventually going to go to them might be a little bit more hesitant to use that money to get their parent the best medical care possible. Something that I feel is often overlooked as well is the fact that a loved one, even one with the best of intentions and the biggest heart in the world, doesn't automatically know what's best for someone they care about just because they love them. Knowing someone with a disability doesn't make you qualified to help someone with a disability, and in regards to money, very few courts require guardians to take any sort of training for how to deal with someone else's accounting. Also, there's of course natural tension that arises within all intimate relationships, and things can be exacerbated when one person has substantial power over the other. It's worth noting that Nichelle and her son Kyle reportedly already had a contentious relationship as we somewhat heard in that video from 2013. When the conservatorship was put into place and Nichelle's attorney said the actress had consented to the conservatorship and that she voluntarily did not appear in court on the day that it was enacted. But keep in mind that Nichelle's attorney was court-appointed which means that she did not choose him. A judge chose him for her. And he doesn't necessarily have to do what's in her best interest because she's unable to fire him or likely hire anyone else, as is what happened to Britney Spears for the first 13 years of her conservatorship. Not only did Britney struggle for over a decade to get her own representation that she herself chose, she admitted things in her 2021 testimony that implied that her attorney was hiding information from her and was discouraging her from breaking her silence and telling people what she had been through.
0: Ma'am, I didn't know I could petition the conservatorship to in, in, end it. I'm sorry for my ignorance, but I honestly didn't know that. Um, I know my lawyer, Sam, has been very scared for me to go forward because he's saying if I speak up, I'm being over, overworked in that facility, of that rehab place, the the rehab place will sue me. He told me I should keep it to myself, really. I would personally like to, actually, I know I've, I've had grown with a personal relationship with Sam, my lawyer. I've been talking to him like three times Um, a week now. We've kind of built a relationship, but I haven't really had the opportunity by my own handpick, my own lawyer by myself.
1: Because of my experience following Brittany's case, I find Nichelle's court-appointed attorney's claim that she personally decided to not appear at her own court hearing a little suspicious. Not only that, we actually have recording of Nichelle finding out about the conservatorship, And it doesn't paint the situation well. Now, keep in mind, this was filmed by Gilbert Bell, who definitely has a biased take on everything, but you can hear for yourself Nichelle's reaction to finding out what her son has done. I'll warn you before I play the audio, it is pretty disturbing. Nichelle is screaming a lot in it, so, if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead like a minute.
6: He wouldn't even let me come say hello to you for your birthday. How could he stop you? By law, I'm not allowed over there. I, I'm the boss of me, But... He's not the boss of me.
3: Yes, he is.
6: No, he isn't.
3: He has permanent conservatorship on you.
6: Then I didn't rid of
3: it.
6: However, I didn't give permission to have conservatorship over me. And nobody asked me. Well, according
3: to the attorney, you didn't want to go to court.
4: No, that's
6: not true. Hello. Hi. What are you coming
4: to get me for? So that you can go home. No, I'm not
6: going home. I am. I have a conversation. I know how to get home.
4: Well,
6: I you going home now. No, I'm not. No, I am not! No. Kyle, I'll no. kill you! No, you won't. You get the fuck out of my way, don't you dare! Come on, mother.
3: We're, going, we're going home now. Give me my mother Come mother. Mother. Kyle! Mother. No. Mother.
4: No. Mother. no! No! Mother. No! No, you get home.
3: your hands off mother, me! Mother, we are going home. No! We are going home. I'm
6: not going home I'm unless you let right. get rid of me! Mother. You're trying to get rid of me!
1: To be fair, if Nichelle has dementia, there is a possibility that she at one point did agree to the arrangement, and then the moment that we're seeing in the video, or that you were just hearing on the audio, could just be a momentary outburst or a temporary lapse in memory, but I find that a little bit hard to believe since we don't have any sort of further statement from Nichelle in which she clarified that this was an outburst and that she was okay with it, the only word we have are from people that financially benefit from the situation, including Kyle Johnson, her son, and her court-appointed attorney, who is also paid via Nichelle's estate, whether she can choose him as her representation or not. This is what Angelique Fawcett had to say of that video through a statement she made to People magazine? I know she has short-term memory loss, but she is not unaware of who she is, nor is she not aware of her surroundings. She is not having outbursts. She was reading that court document in that video and that is what made her upset. I know for a fact as a person who has been around her all of this time that she is not at that level. She still takes care of herself, For example, when I visit her, if I change the color of my hair, she notices, and she knows that her friends never come by. I'm the only friend that visits her. I know Nichelle and Kyle had a bad relationship. I've never seen Nichelle scream like that. Whether we take Angelique's side on that issue or not, we do have other reasons to distrust Kyle Johnson. For instance... Pretty quickly after the conservatorship was made permanent, Kyle moved Nichelle to New Mexico in 2020, allegedly against her wishes. He also began denying visitation rights to Nichelle's friends. This is a pretty normal tactic for conservatorship or just elder abuse overall. A lot of these situations progress to the degree where it becomes extremely harmful to the ward or the elderly person, because they've isolated them from their other support network. Angelique said with this move that she was completely cut out of Nichelle's life, and we have footage from other people who were trying to get in contact with Nichelle, but were prevented from doing so specifically because of Kyle. In 2021, Nichelle appeared at a Comic-Con event, which... By the way, I have some questions about, because if Nichelle is so incapacitated that she's having outbursts, I don't really understand why she would be propped up in front of her own fans at an event where she could theoretically have another outburst. That seems incredibly irresponsible to me. But at this event, a longtime friend of Nichelle's named Carrie O'Quinn attempted to speak with Nichelle and was carried away by Kyle Johnson and some guard that I guess he had hired. And this is what a friend of Carrie's wrote on Instagram while posting a video of the event. Legendary Star Trek actress Nichelle Nichols has been under a strict conservatorship by her monster of a son, Kyle Johnson, for the past few years. He doesn't allow any of her friends to see or even speak to her on the phone. He sold her house that she clearly stated she wanted to live in for the remainder of her life and he removed her to the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. Yesterday, I was at a Los Angeles Comic Con working with my good friend Carrie O'Quinn, creator of Fangora and Starlock magazines. Carrie and Nichelle have been close friends for nearly 40 years. Nichelle has even had birthday parties for Carrie at her home as well as starring in Carrie's upcoming documentary, From the Bridge. Carrie hasn't been allowed to have any contact with Nichelle since Kyle took over her life. We attempted to get Carrie up to Nichelle during her photo-op session so he could reconnect. As soon as Kyle recognized Carrie, he ran up, grabbed Carrie, and pushed him. He then came for me and grabbed my phone, as you'll see in the video. You can see Nichelle reach out for Carrie as well as the sadness in her eyes. This is the reality that Nichelle has gone through. These are the links Kyle takes to keep her out of her own life and take all the money he can off of her. I'll play the audio from the video so you can hear what he's talking about.
4: Excuse me, excuse me, no, no, no. out, out of the room, out of the room, out, out of the room, out of the room. How did you guys let him in? I didn't.
5: You Sorry. need to get off to him. You know who he is? I know who he is. You don't touch him. Don't touch me either. I'm not touching you. Don't touch me either.
4: Get the fuck out. we in are Get the fuck out. I'm not. Please, please, get out. Will somebody
3: call it? I'm calling the fucking cops
1: right now. If all that weren't enough, we also have quotes from a remote deposition from September of 2020, where a former temporary conservator of Nichelle's named BJ Hawkins testified against Kyle and his abuse. She said Kyle routinely made threats against individuals, including BJ herself. A direct quote is, There were comments that he would get me, that he would fix me, that he would hurt me. BJ went on to say that Kyle spoke in anger and used profanity often and acted in violent manners toward her on two occasions. About his performance as a conservator, BJ said that Kyle wouldn't allow certain people around Nichelle, including Angelique. The only reason he gave was that he, quote, didn't like her. And he believed that many people, including Angelique, were conspiring against him with Gilbert Bell. When asked directly if Kyle ever attempted to keep Nichelle from appearing in court, BJ answered yes. Then she said, He said that I could be continued to be paid as a conservator and could have the successor trustee appointment if I agreed to follow his instructions in some specific areas. He wanted to be able to control who had access to his mother. He specifically wanted me to go after Gilbert Bell. He wanted me to fire the contractor for the events. There were some other financial matters that during our meetings we had indicated that he had responsibility for for example receipts for supplies for the conservative that he had not supplied and he indicated that he wanted that to stop also and then he would allow the appointment as had been agreed to the appoint meaning the conservatorship of the estate on a permanent basis and the appointment as successor trustee in order to deal with issues and the crisis with the real property The demands that Kyle Johnson made were often, in my opinion, as a licensed professional fiduciary and conservator, not in the best financial interest or other interest of the conservatee. BJ also said that Kyle moved Nichelle despite her wanting to stay in her home. The direct quote is, "It was consistent that the property was her pride and joy." To be clear, Kyle has sold that house. So with all that, I think we have a lot of reasons to be concerned about the conservatorship of Nichelle Nichols. She's been placed under the care of a family member she had known problems with, she's had property of value to her sold likely without her consent, and most importantly, she's seemingly been isolated from her own friends and support network. Nichelle's case hasn't reached the amount of publicity that Britney Spears did, But it has gotten the attention of an organization that's been advocating against elder abuse for a few years, called Kasem Cares, which brings us to our next celebrity. If you were a part of Free Britney, you might have seen some information from this case related to the involvement of Sam Ingham, specifically headlines such as Jean Kasem exposes Britney Spears' court-appointed attorney, Samuel D. Ingham III, in scathing wrongful death court filing for the killing of radio star and TV icon, Casey Kasem, or why Britney Spears' lawyer, Samuel Ingham III, was accused of conspiring to isolate and kill radio icon, Casey Kasem, or just vaguely Britney Spears' conservatorship lawyer has a very mysterious past. And look, I don't like Sam Ingham as much as the next gal, but this situation is a little bit more complicated than these headlines imply. Don't worry, we'll still get an opportunity to shit on Sam, but first, let's backtrack. Casey Kasem was a legendary radio personality known for his decades-long hosting of the radio show American Top 40. Casey's Top 40!
4: I'm Casey Kasem, these are the hits you're buying, and radio stations are playing from coast to coast.
1: But, if you ever had a childhood, you probably know him for a different role?
4: Now, how many of you know the show Scooby-Doo? <laughs> yeah. There's a character that I play on that show, the sidekick of Scooby-Doo for the past 17 or 18 years, and his name is Shaggy. And Shaggy would like to say a few words to the young people out there, all right? And
1: he's always talking about his good buddy Scoob, his old friend, his old pal, his old dear, dear buddy. Fun fact, Casey is actually the reason that Shaggy was eventually written to be a vegetarian, Casey was a dedicated vegan who initially quit voicing Shaggy in the mid-90s when asked to voice him in a Burger King commercial. He eventually came back to the role after negotiations with creators to make Shaggy stop eating meat. So clearly this was something very important to him, so maybe make note of that, cause it does kinda come up later. But anyway, in the 1980s, Casey met and married Jean Thompson, now Jean Kasem, the actress who played the recurring character Loretta in Cheers.
4: Loretta, if I have caused you uh, any heartache, I want to say I'm sorry. But I really do love you, and I know you love me, and it's crazy for us not to be together. You're the only woman on earth for me. How come the cake says Nick and Diane? (laughs) Excuse me?
1: (laughs) How come the cake says Nick and Diane?
4: You know what a lousy speller I am.
1: (laughs) Oh, right. I tried to watch Cheers a long time ago, but the set is just so, like, brown. I just couldn't get past it. But the other thing Jean was known for was her red carpet attire and overall style, and that I can absolutely get behind. She had some looks, as we'll get into in a minute, I definitely don't think that Jean Kasem is a particularly good person, but like Broken Clocks and Ted Cruz, she did sometimes get things right. Before we go forward, I'll admit that, painted in broad strokes, this picture does look pretty messy. And to be clear, this story does end with Carrie Kasem Casey's daughter, getting a conservatorship over her father, then days later removing him from artificial nutrition and hydration, after which he did die. Sam Ingham at the time of Casey's death was also Casey's court-appointed attorney, and I do find that man particularly sus. And also, Carrie is a Scientologist, which doesn't make her a bad person necessarily, but I am generally distrustful of Scientologists, especially in anything related to medical care, since they are so infamously anti-psychiatry.
3: I've never agreed with psychiatry, ever. All it does is mask the problem, man. And if you understand the history of it, it masks the problem. That's what it does. That's all it does. You're not getting to the reason why. There is no such thing as a chemical imbalance.
1: But, when you look into the case further, I think the benefit of the doubt does come down on Carrie's side. Admittedly, much of the information I have on the story comes from Carrie Kasem's Audible original podcast, "Bitter Blood: Kasem vs Kasem, so I might be approaching this from a biased lens, but listening to the podcast, the amount of people who've come forward to paint Jean as a goddamn monster is astounding, including, and especially, people who have directly worked with Jean. So let's start. When you're imagining Jean Kasem in this scenario, I suggest you imagine her as the stepmother from The Parent Trap.
2: first change I make is to send that 2 ice little brat off to boarding school
6: in Timbuktu. Oof, ice woman. Proud of it, babe.
1: The only real difference is that Casey's children from his first marriage were adults by the time he married Jean, but she was eager to isolate him from his first family nonetheless. So much so that when the two got married, none of Casey's kids were invited to the wedding at Jean's direction. Then in 1990, Jean and Casey have their own daughter, Liberty, who you can basically think of as Jean Jr. The two of them, Liberty and Jean, were at constant odds with the children from Casey's first marriage. By October 2013, Carrie publicly announced that her father was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2007. A few months later, they announced he actually had body dementia, which is frequently misdiagnosed as Parkinson's. But in 2007, with the original Parkinson's diagnosis, Casey signed an advanced health care directive, which is basically a power of attorney agreement, naming his daughter Julie Kasem as the person he wanted to make healthcare decisions for him. He signed that document at a UPS store so that Gene wouldn't know, because he knew that Gene would have been very upset at the idea of him putting one of his children from his first marriage in charge of his medical decisions. When she did find out, Gene produced a different advanced healthcare directive in 2011 as part of Casey's estate plan hoping it would invalidate the 2007 plan. The legality of that new arrangement was a bit iffy, but Casey's health had declined to a point where he had lost most of his basic abilities, leaving him housebound where Gene could isolate him from his other loved ones even more. In October of 2013, there was a protest outside of Gene and Casey's house with both his children and other family members and friends and past colleagues, literally just trying to get access to Casey because they all claimed that Gene had completely shut them out of his life.
4: According to the housekeeper, she has to ask Gene first if Casey can come and say hi to his friend who just knocked on the door. I said, he's a grown man. He should be able to come to the door if he wants. That's not the house rules. Jean is in the shower and she has to be asked first and then
5: he can be allowed to come out. So we're now waiting for permission for a grown man to be able to come to the door and see his friend.
1: There was a fair amount of media coverage and Jean called the cops.
5: So she's, she's
1: inside because she's the one who called the cops. We know that. We know that. She said that we were, um, obviously, she got a helicopter out there. She got uh, six or seven squad cars out because it was an emergency me,
2: call. you said that there was a helicopter? Yeah. There was yes. I just
1: want to let you know that most of these people are over 50, 60, 70, and 80 years old. Right. So we're all sitting in chairs. Right. There's no,
3: no menace, there's, right. there's not, no threats. There's not like a, a she said it was a high alert. She said it was a high alert right, call.
4: There's not a tactical team no. outside of the
3: home. No. <laughs> no, no. Right. The police had backup. Right. Yeah.
1: Attempting to publicize their battle, though, and try to gain access to their father, Casey's children continue to do interviews discussing their separation from him.
3: Kerry, what is going on here? Why does your stepmother, Jean, have such a resistance to you seeing your father?
1: You know, there's been a resistance for so long ever since my father married her. So it's been a very long time. We saw this coming. This isn't, we weren't blindsided by this. Um, This is a man we saw, you know, every single week, talked to him every single day on the phone until he lost his voice. We are an extremely close-knit family, extremely. And his family means more to him than anything. So why she is blocking us is, it's the only- It's dumbfounding, really. So at this point, Casey's kids were trying to get a conservatorship over him, and this is where we get to shit on Sam Ingham. In talking about the legal process of trying to establish this conservatorship, casemcares.org wrote this. The court-appointed PVP attorney Sam Ingham informed Judge Joy Paul that his client was being well cared for and requested that his report be sealed to protect his client's right to privacy of his medical information. At the time, Attorney Ingham had only seen his client once, and had not yet reviewed the medical records. That's the kind of A-class oversight I expect from Mr. Ingham. At this point, Casey's children, except for Carrie, agreed to a settlement where Jean would allow visitation that Carrie claimed was about once or twice a month for 20 minutes at a time with a guard present. But Julie Kasem and everyone who signed the agreement pretty much waived their right to file for conservatorship against Jean, or really do any sort of legal move that would challenge her control over Casey's life. They agreed to this just to have the chance to see their father. But despite the agreement, Jean moved Casey from his home to a new residence and wouldn't tell anyone where he was. In Bitter Blood, we get a few statements testifying to Jean's abuse of Casey, including from Lupita, Jean's assistant at the time, who said she saw Casey sign the 2011 Advanced Health Care Directive at Jean's Instruction, but that Casey didn't understand what he was signing.
4: In 2011, Lupita says she witnessed Casey signing paperwork granting Jean power of attorney.
7: A gentleman came to the house, and Jean had me go and open the door, the main door from the house to the gentleman, escort him inside the house, and I walked him into Mr. Casey's room. And Jean had me stand right there next to her and the gentleman, and Mr. Casey was in the bed, and she asked Casey to sign those documents. Mr. Casey asked him what was it, and she's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm taking care of you. I'm the only one that cares for you. I need you to sign. And that's when the gentleman proceeded to give the documents to Gene and Mr. Casey started signing them. He didn't even know what he was
1: signing. Then Rosa, Casey's caretaker, saw Gene and Liberty force-feeding him.
4: Rosa has haunting memories of Gene and Liberty, waking Casey up in the middle of the night to force-feed him.
6: When they come in to try to force him to eat, he ate already. He's sleeping because because he don't he don't want to eat the, the food
4: rosa says they forced casey to eat foods he swore off as a vegan
6: sometimes they do eggs and he don't like eggs and he closed
1: his mouth that believe me make me cry and still make me cry Tony, an assistant and driver for Casey, also says that he saw Gene force-feeding Casey. And Rosa said that Gene slept in another room, and this is important because there was a suspicion that Gene was having an affair with a man named Jean-Paul. A private investigator named Logan Clark said that money from Casey's estate was even being used to fund Jean-Paul's business. On April 27, 2014, Carrie Kasem had discovered that her father was at a convalescent hospital in Santa Monica, so she asked the facility to allow her in to see her father. At first they refused, because at Gene's direction, they were not supposed to allow the children from his first marriage to visit him. But Casey's attorney, Martha Patterson, did eventually argue for her legal right to see her father, and they let her in. When the facility called Jean Kasem, though, to let her know what had happened, Jean called the police to get them removed. Then, in the middle of the night, at approximately 2.45 a.m., Jean Kasem came to the facility and had Casey and his medical equipment carried out to a waiting car. The facility asked Jean to sign documents saying that she was removing him against medical advice, but she refused. The facility then called Adult Protective Services, and this is just one of three times that Adult Protective Services would be called against Gene Kasem, and every call was made by separate parties. Shortly after this, on May 12th, 2014, Carrie was granted a temporary conservatorship of the person for Casey. But by that time, Jean, Casey, and Liberty were all missing.
7: Straight out to Kim Serafin, senior editor in Touch Weekly,
1: what is happening to Scooby-Doo? Where is he? It's Shaggy, correct? Jean hired two women named Rhonda, who was a bookkeeper, and Susan, who was a nurse, to be caretakers for Casey while they were essentially on the run. But... The two women said that Casey had nothing to eat or drink for about six hours, and they were so horrified by the treatment of Casey by Jean that they pretty quickly quit. They were never paid for their time, and Casey just went on in Jean and Liberty's care, where his condition seemed to have gotten quite a lot worse. Eventually the three, along with Jean-Paul, was found in a private home in Washington, but when Carrie went to go get her father, the conservatorship was invalid because it was in a different state. If you look online, you can find a about 10 second video of Jean coming out of the home, confronting Carrie and throwing meat at her while yelling Bible verses. With a new court filing, Carrie is able to get Casey into a hospital, where they discover that he is malnourished, has a UTI, a lung infection, and a third stage bedsore. The hospital has him on artificial nutrition and hydration for a little while, but the doctors soon recommend they cease the use of that, because it was causing so much harm to Casey, since he was pretty much just… dying? so his body wasn't taking to any of it. Instead of being hydrated, his lungs were just kind of filling up with water, and he was pretty much drowning in the hydration. On June 11th, Carrie was finally validated as the conservator of the person for Casey, and she goes with the doctor's recommendation and takes Casey off of the hydration and artificial nutrition. He then died on June 14th. Jean was not present for his death, but she used the circumstances of Casey's death to try to paint Carrie as if she had murdered her father in an attempt to get access to his estate, even though she was never the conservator of Casey's estate and had no control over that aspect of his life whatsoever.
3: Casey Kasem died on June 15th, 2014. In your opinion, did he die of natural causes or something else.
7: I assure you, Peter,
8: that I did not kill him.
3: But do you believe someone else is responsible for his death?
8: Yes, I do. It's the adult children of Casey from a prior marriage of over 40 years ago.
1: After that, Gene managed to take Casey's body from the funeral home he was at, She and Liberty disappeared with it and buried Casey in Norway in an unmarked grave with no headstone. They had a private funeral where none of Casey's friends or family were invited. So this is a situation in where the conservatorship measures didn't really seem to be the problem involved with this elder abuse, more so that it was the isolation that had occurred prior committed by Casey's own wife. We can see that sort of situation again with the case of Mickey Rooney. Mickey was an actor, he appeared in over 300 films during his lifetime, and he was one of the last surviving stars of the silent film era. If you're around my age, you might know him for his legendary role as Santa Claus or Kris Kringle.
4: You tell those young'uns there'll be plenty of toys, but only if they behave themselves. No crying or pouting or. No, I, I'll know. I got ways of knowing. I can see them when they're sleeping, and I know when they're awake.
1: Or maybe the Disney Channel original movie Phantom of the Mechaplex, which I've watched within the last six months.
4: But there's always magic at the movies, pirate ships. Bicycles that fly, angels earn their wings, beautiful women marry handsome men, and we all learn there's no place
1: like home. Like Casey some Mickey Rooney was abused by his wife and this time stepson. They allegedly abused him emotionally. Physically and financially to the point that when he died though He had earned millions of dollars during his lifetime. He was left with only $18,000 in assets in 2011 he got restraining orders against his wife and his stepson along with his stepson's wife and entered a voluntary conservatorship overseen by Michael Augustine That same year, he testified against elder abuse in front of Congress.
4: In my case, I was eventually and completely stripped of the ability to make even the most basic decisions. Where do we go? What do we do? Decisions that everyone likes to make. Over the course of time, my daily life became... My daily life became unbearable. To those seniors and especially elderly veterans, you veterans like myself, I want to tell you this, (laughs) you're not alone, and you have nothing, nothing, ladies and gentlemen, to be ashamed of. You deserve, yes, you deserve better. You all have the right to control your own life, everyone does. You have the right to control your life and be happy. Please, for yourself, end the cycle of abuse and do not allow yourself to be silenced anymore."
1: He died three years later in April of 2014, but a lot of the people around him said that his demeanor did change and he was a lot happier once he had gotten away from his abusers and into his conservatorship. So. Casey Kasem and Mickey Rooney both represent situations in which a guardianship was actually beneficial to the ward, and they probably could've benefited a lot more had those measures been taken a bit earlier so that they could've gotten away from the people that were horrifically abusing them. But sometimes, even in cases in which a conservatorship helps get a victim of abuse into a better situation, There can still be potentially inappropriate action taken by the conservator, as appears to have been the case for one of my favorite musicians of all time.
4: Here are the Beach Boys!
1: (laughs) Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys dealt with mental health problems for much of his adult life. They started to appear most severely in the mid-60s, after he began taking psychedelics and said that he started to hear voices and auditory hallucinations. To be clear, psychedelics and other drugs like that don't really cause auditory hallucinations, but Brian himself has linked the time in which he was doing a lot of drugs to the time in which his symptoms first appeared so he does seem to believe that they are correlated. But around the time that those symptoms appeared, he began becoming paranoid, he thought that the devil was chasing him, and he started drinking a lot and overeating where he was gaining a lot of weight, and allegedly spent two years in bed. Two years consistently. In October of 1975, his first wife Marilyn contacted Eugene Landy, who was a psychologist from the University of Oklahoma. Landy developed his own idea for 24-hour therapy and had founded his own Beverly Hills Clinic where he worked with celebs like Alice Cooper and Rob Steiger. He charged about $200 an hour and he prescribed Brian Wilson with 24-7 therapy for at least two years. When Brian realized that Landy had begun charging him a monthly fee of $20,000, he eventually fired Landy, but then a few years later, his spiral into drugs and his slip back into a deep depression caused Brian's family— meaning pretty much the Beach Boys, since that was made up of his siblings and also a cousin of his along with a friend, convinced Brian to rejoin Landy's program beginning in 1983. In
4: 1983, at the family's request, Dr. Eugene Landy placed Wilson under therapy, his highly unorthodox therapy, a kind of boot camp, 24-hour supervision, diet control, exercise... Whatever Landy's method, his program worked. Did Dr. Landy save your life? Absolutely. Yes, he did. But success had a price, an astronomical price. The bills came in, $50,000 for vitamins, $25,000 for Landy's out-of-pocket expenses for four days in Hawaii. And the family says the entire time, the sweet and loving Brian they knew has been isolated, virtually held a prisoner by Landy. And poisoned against them. They have said that they think you're in a kind of prison. Well, life is a prison in itself. Not just the Dr. Lanny not just the not just the Dr. Nanny program, but there's everybody has to have a little imprisonment in order to to understand that. Uh, you know that this is where we are. I mean, just you know.
1: I'm sure from that clip, and also the general pattern of this episode, you figured out that Landy was incredibly abusive to Brian. In 1979, Brian had divorced his wife, Marilyn, and in the 1980s, he began dating a woman named Melinda Ledbetter. But after three years together, Landy became incredibly intimidated by Brian and Melinda's closeness and banned Melinda from Brian's life. Shortly after, in 1988, the California Board of Medical Assurance brought charges against Landy for sexual misconduct with a female patient and misconduct in gross negligence with Brian Wilson. Dr. Landy was forced to surrender his license in 1989 but continued working with Brian and was prescribing him medication illegally through a psychiatrist. Melinda began contacting Brian's friends and family to alert them of the abuse she witnessed by Dr. Landy, and in 1992, Brian was appointed the conservator Jerome Billet. I don't know how to pronounce that last name, I tried to look it up, so if I'm wrong, I apologize. But Jerome became Brian's conservator in 1992. They got restraining orders against Eugene Landy. However, in 1995, Brian, with his current conservator, who is his wife, Melinda. They're married now, and we stand Melinda. They sued Jerome for more than $10 million, alleging he failed to supervise the lawyers who were handling his litigation against Irving Music, overwrites to his songs, and a lawsuit brought against Brian by his fellow beach boy, Mike Love. These quotes are from a Variety article at the time. It says, the complaint alleges Billet knew or should have known that Wilson's former lawyers, who are not named in the lawsuit, violated court orders by suppressing and destroying documents, lied under oath, and hid key documents, and that Billett overcharged Wilson. Let also allegedly knew the lawyers were engaging in misconduct that would lead to sanctions but made no reasonable effort to settle the case while charging Wilson as much as $300 an hour supervising the litigation. A key thing to note here, since one of the lawsuits against Brian was brought by Mike Love, is that Mike Love was also one of the people who specifically got Jerome Billet appointed as Brian's conservator. This happened over two decades ago, and the details of the lawsuit were never made super public. But from the outside, it does seem like there might have been a conflict of interest as far as Brian's conservator being more or less nominated by one of the people that Brian ended up in a lawsuit that was pretty much botched after the conservatorship was put in place. So even in this situation in which the conservatorship did help Brian get away from Dr. Eugene Landy, which was almost certainly a positive, there was still room for Brian's conservator to take advantage of the situation and possibly exploit Brian's estate to gain more money for people he had already had somewhat of an allegiance with as well as just overcharging Brian for his own services overall. And this is also a common problem within conservatorships because fees as a conservator are typically not something that are agreed upon prior. They are something that is billed to an estate and then a court just signs off on it. So a lot of people will overcharge an estate and then afterward... There's not really any way to reverse the charges unless the court wants to actually go forward and prove exploitation in a guardianship, but that is a long process that most courts are not trained on how to proceed with. So it's kind of easy for a lot of guardians to take advantage of their ward's estates because There just isn't a consistent amount of oversight within the courts. But now we're going to get into a longer conversation about a case that gets me a little fired up because of some of the talking points I've seen around this one. So let's talk about Bam Margera. Bam Margera is a famous skateboarder, probably one of the most famous, if not the most, outside of like Tony Hawk, who's reached a level of fame I don't think skateboarders come by that often. But Bam is also one of the founding members of the Jackass franchise, where not only did he contribute significantly to that team. But his family was also heavily involved, often being called the first family of Jackass.
5: I'm Bam Margera,
6: and I feel like kicking my dad's ass all day today.
1: Bam was incredibly successful not only as a cast member on Jackass, but also with his own spin-off Viva La Bam, which ran for five seasons on MTV. Like many of his Jackass co-stars though, Bam did struggle with substances, particularly with alcoholism starting in his 20s. For a long time, Bam seemed relatively well-adjusted compared to his co-stars, but in 2011, fellow Jackass and Bam's best friend of over a decade, Ryan Dunn? tragically died in a drunk driving accident along with Jackass production assistant Zachary Hartwell, after Ryan veered off the road while driving and hit a tree, causing a fire that would kill both of them. Not only did Bam find a lot of difficulty dealing with the sudden loss of his friend, his grief was surrounded by cameras as the media swarmed the Jackass crew to capture their immediate reaction. Bam and his parents were thrust into the spotlight nearly hours after the tragic accident.
5: How did you find out?
7: Actually, Casey from WMMR is a friend of ours. He usually checks with us Mm. to see if these rumors are true. There's always rumors about Bam and the Jackass guys, so Mm. we always just usually call whoever it is and make sure they're okay, and then I get back to him and tell him that, you know, everything's fine. But um, this morning, I couldn't get hold of anybody, and... I ended up calling the police station and they confirmed it, you know, that, um, you know, Ryan was in a bad accident. Mm-hmm. You
6: did believe it and not believe it?
7: I still don't. <laughs> I still don't. Like, he's, he's like one of our, he's, you know, our extra kid.
4: It's been a couple hours and we still don't know whether to believe it, but I guess we have to believe it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, uh, he was saying, bam, he's just found out a half hour ago, and he's still screaming, jumping up and down. So
3: I hope he calms down shortly.
0: I've never lost anybody that I care about. It's <laughs> my best friend. <laughs> I was in Arizona when I heard, and I just remember we're, I was with friends having the best time ever. And at 1230, I just started punching out the windows of the rental van and ripping out the speakers and I don't even know why I wasn't mad at anything or anybody and and if it's 1230 there that means that it was exactly when he crashed. (laughs) He was the happiest person ever. (laughs) the smartest guy, he had so much talent (laughs) and he had so many things going for him. This is not
5: right. Not right. (laughs) How do you get through this? A lot of people have been worried about you. I can't.
1: I can't. Though a few weeks after Ryan's death, Bam seemed to stabilize emotionally. He spent the next following years falling deeper into alcoholism and exhibiting behavior that was increasingly erratic until he had been arrested multiple times, started going in and out of rehab, and started acting aggressively and occasionally violent.
5: Um, As we, when we showed you this video, we thought, it seems like Bam is uh, perhaps on a downward spiral here, maybe drinking again, and we have now confirmed that that is what's going on and his family has stepped up Uh, to get him some help.
1: Though at times Bam's mental health struggles appeared to be improving, in the last few years his behavior has become even more erratic, to the point where he started going on rants on Instagram, often targeting his friends or his wife, making a lot of threats toward various people, and even made an appearance on the Dr. Phil show. In early 2021, Bam revealed he wouldn't be in the newest Jackass movie because Paramount, its distributor, saw him as a liability. He claimed in a later Instagram video that he was fired from the film after breaking his sobriety, saying he had taken Adderall he had found in his car, And admitting to suicidal thoughts and asking his fans to boycott Jackass forever and send him money directly instead. During these videos, Bam was visibly under the influence of something, and at one point even vomited on himself while he was speaking and then just continued talking. I'm not gonna play any of the audio from it because it's clear that Bam's state of mind was not one in which he was making sound decisions, but if you want to imagine it, just think of the saddest thing you've ever seen, and then vomit on it. And that's pretty much it. In May of 2021, Jackass director Jeff Tremaine filed for a temporary restraining order against Bam for three years which was extended to Jeff's wife and children. He accused Bam of harassing himself and Johnny Knoxville via Instagram, as well as allegedly sending death threats to Jeff's family via text. Then on August 9th of 2021, Bam filed a lawsuit against Paramount, Johnny Knoxville, Jeff Tremaine, Spike Jonze, Dick Dickhouse Entertainment, and Gorilla Flicks, basically anyone who was involved in the Jackass Forever film, for wrongful termination, breach of contract, and emotional distress, among other complaints. Bam said that he was made to sign a wellness agreement, which he claims he signed under duress. He said the agreement required him to take three breathalyzer tests a day, two urine tests a week, and regular hair follicle tests. He additionally claimed that Paramount required him to take several pills every morning, that a doctor hired by Paramount watched him take via FaceTime, and was threatened that if he didn't take all of the medication, or if he failed or missed a drug or alcohol test, he would be cut from the Jackass franchise. When Bam was fired in August of 2020, he claimed that he was not fired because he relapsed, But because he had tested positive for Adderall, a drug he says he'd taken for years by prescription to treat his ADHD. Bam and his lawyers were claiming he had been protected by the American Disabilities Act, which Paramount then violated by firing Bam for taking his prescribed medication. In addition to all that, Bam claimed to be the creator of Jackass, which is not totally accurate but we're going to come back to that because it's important later. This lawsuit has become a big point of contention for a lot of the people concerned with Bam's guardianship, so let's quickly overview its validity. First off, it's not totally unusual for employers to require sobriety as a condition for employment, especially for jackass, which involves dangerous stunts that sometimes require the participation of multiple people, so for that reason I don't think Paramount trying to ensure that Bam was sober is unreasonable. They are not able, however, to require that Bam take any specific medication, however, I'm also not sure that they did. TMZ published a photo of a document in September of 2021 that at least appears to be the wellness agreement that BAM signed. This is what it says. I, BAM Margera, fully understand that I will not be able to engage in negotiating a contract to participate in a new jackass film Unless I stay in treatment for a minimum of 90 days and abide by the rules set forth by the treatment center. I understand that I have to remain sober and only take medication approved by the medical staff of the treatment center. I understand that if I do participate in a new jackass film, it will include conditions for my continued sobriety and mental health approved by the treatment center. The contract was signed by Bam Margera, Johnny Knoxville, Jeff Tremaine, and Spike Jones. Now, I'm not sure if there's another document somewhere else with more specific terms, but just looking at this, it only says the treatment center, but it doesn't say which treatment center. So I'm unsure if Bam got to choose his treatment or if it was chosen by Paramount. Also. In an earlier Instagram video from Bam, he does say the therapist they recommended, he doesn't say the therapist they required, they meaning Paramount. So I don't really find any evidence that it was Paramount or anyone specifically hired by the production team that was prescribing Bam these medications or dictating what his specific treatment was. Now, attorneys for Paramount called Bam's claim baseless and outright lies. Bam's complaint had said that he had been prescribed Adderall for ADHD, however, Paramount's attorney said that he actually got the Adderall quote, off the street. And I don't find that totally unbelievable because Bam had been in rehab specifically for abusing Adderall in the past. As someone with ADHD herself who is prescribed stimulants, I know that getting insurance to cover a prescription for stimulants can be a huge pain in the ass, so if you have a previous history of abuse, I don't think a doctor or an insurance company would really want to cover your prescription of that particular substance. But also, Bam is rich and rich people live by different rules than the rest of us, so he could have been prescribed Adderall, it doesn't not make sense. But also note that even in Bam's complaint, he and his lawyer claim he was taking prescription Adderall, but it doesn't say that he was taking Adderall as prescribed. There's still a possibility that he was taking a higher dose than his prescription, which would still violate the wellness agreement whether or not he had a prescription to begin with. Also, in the Instagram video where Bam originally complained about being fired from Jackass, he said he took an Adderall pill he found in his car. That doesn't sound to me like a current prescription. I don't know why you would resort to taking an Adderall pill in your car if you were already being prescribed Adderall, and Paramount and everyone involved at Jackass already knew that you were taking that substance. Paramount also denied that Bam was pressured into signing the contract, but that's not something we'll really ever know, because it happened behind closed doors. Who's to say? That's a he said, she said thing. But they went on to call the claim that they had hired a doctor to force Spam to take a cocktail of pills, absurd, and quote, never happened. Fellow jackass steve weighed in on this situation in an Instagram comment, saying, Everyone bent over backwards to get you in the movie, and all you had to do was not get loaded. You've continued to get loaded, it's that simple. We all love you every bit as much as we all say we do, but no one who really loves you can enable you or encourage you to stay sick. Then on September 16th, 2021, Bam's wife filed for sole custody of their son, however, she did not file for divorce. She said she was willing to give Bam visitation, but only with a monitor whom he could select, but she had to approve. Shortly after, on September 26th, 2021, police responded to a complaint regarding BAM at a Tampa Bay hotel. BAM had already been court-ordered to attend rehab requested by a third-party individual, but BAM told TMZ that the unnamed individual called the police after seeing a picture of him holding what appeared to be a drink at a casino in Florida, and the police then took him to rehab. A 911 call obtained by Page Six, however, told a different story. They reported that the person who called 911 claimed that Bam had attacked a woman inside the hotel, saying, he attacked her, grabbed her breast, and she said she thinks he tore her implant. When asked if Bam was under the influence, the caller said, absolutely, there's no question about it, he's really highly intoxicated. They also commented on his mental state, saying he's in severe psychosis, I believe. Bam was then taken to a treatment center. We find out later that on September 14th, 2021, a woman named Lima Yevremovic petitioned to place Bam into a guardianship in Florida. The documents for this case are sealed, so the details of this arrangement are not known. But in a December 2021 episode of steve podcast, steve Wild Ride, him and guest Brandon Novak talk about not hearing from Bam for a little while because he had been in recovery where they claimed that his phone privileges had been taken away from him. They then say something that garnered a bit of attention.
7: The good thing is now is, is uh,
4: he's got like... He's under a conservatorship you know and it's not a conservatorship it's a guardianship oh really the conservatorship has fears. has financial implications with the conservatorship they're they're in charge of all of your your money and everything a guardianship they they kind of leave your money out of it yeah and uh and the guardianship they're just like kind of there's rules you have to abide by and he's like
3: forced to be in how how long do you have to be like that for?
4: I think that, I mean, I don't know if we're really even allowed to talk about, about it too much, but um, as I understand it, it it's like, uh, still happening. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we'll, leave, we'll leave it at that.
1: So let's talk about Lima for a minute.
3: All right, so Lima. Lima Yem Ramovich.
1: Yeah, Ramovich.
3: You have a company yes. ca- called Aura. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you guys do?
2: So we're all about data-driven healing. Our goal is to use technology to scale affordable, high-quality treatment services.
1: Lima is the CEO of the tech startup Aura and the founder of the Yevremovich Institute of Behavior and Brain Sciences. She is a mixed reality experience designer who specializes in digital health. Aura is a digital health platform designed to enhance therapy in a clinical setting when implemented by healthcare providers. On their website, they claim that Aura was created by clinical psychologists. However, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about that, or the research behind the technology. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, I just don't know where specifically it has been published. But Lima was featured on the Soft White Underbelly YouTube channel, which I suggest you look up the video titled Aura Lima Yavremovic just to get an idea of what that technology does. It does sound like a very interesting concept, again, I just don't know a whole lot about the research behind it. Now the Soft White Underbelly channel actually does play a kind of significant role in this story. so. They are a YouTube channel that I guess is pretty popular, I hadn't heard of them before doing research for this video, but they have about 3 million subscribers and some of their videos have like tens of millions of views. They do profiles on people living in like, out of norm circumstances, so a lot of drug users, gang members, homeless people. They have a really popular video about an inbred family called the Whitakers. I understand the point of showing different people's stories, especially that of people who've been disadvantaged or come from marginalized communities. However, just from the few videos that I saw, I do think that the subjects border on exploitative. The soft white underbelly community at least seems pretty sympathetic and compassionate when I look into the comments of the videos, but the videos very easily could appeal to someone who just wanted to watch something with people they thought of as like weird or degenerate in some way. And the titles for the video are a little clickbaity, including on those of a popular figure for the channel named Amanda. Amanda was a homeless, crack-addicted prostitute, and I'm saying that because that's the word that is used in the title, I normally would not use the word prostitute because it is kind of derogatory, but that's what Soft White Underbelly calls her. And she was featured in multiple videos where she was clearly going through some mental health struggles and was in an extremely unwell state. Again, I understand the point of the videos, and I'm glad that it gave a lot of the channel's audience a person to root for and show compassion toward. However, in some of the videos, I just don't personally believe that Amanda was in a state of mind in which she could consent to having an interview published for millions of viewers. And for that reason, I find the content of the channel to be a little skeezy, but probably still at least well-intentioned. But anyway, viewers really love Amanda. Her videos go like semi-viral, and when Lima had first come on the channel to discuss Aura and her foundation, she announced that she is overseeing a scholarship which would fund someone's treatment within a rehab that used Aura technology. Because of Amanda's popularity on the channel, of course, a lot of viewers wanted to see Amanda become the recipient of Lima's scholarship. On August 30th, 2020, Soft White Underbelly uploads the video Aura Scholarship Lima Yavramovic where Lima announced that Amanda was the Aura Scholarship recipient. At the time, Amanda had recently attacked her father with a pipe, causing police to take her into custody after her father called 911. From there, Lima was able to get Amanda into an LPS conservatorship. Now, An LPS conservatorship is different from the probate conservatorships we've been discussing. For one thing, it is not established in a probate court. It is a California-only arrangement and is governed by the California Welfare and Institutions Code. It is only for the gravely disabled, meaning that someone cannot take care of their basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. And it is not for anything like dementia or a progressive disease because it is specifically put in place with the intent of getting the incapacitated person into treatment. So in a probate conservatorship, a conservator is technically unable to force any sort of treatment onto their conservatee or force them to take any kind of medication. When you give someone complete control over the rest of their life, however, you can kind of coerce them into doing anything you want. For instance, Britney Spears alleged that she was forced into mental health treatment against her will, despite the fact that she was in a probate conservatorship where that would technically be illegal, but... Her father was the one that oversaw her custody arrangement with her children and that was alleged to have been used as a bargaining chip with Britney for pretty much the entirety of the conservatorship. So if she didn't do what someone wanted her to do, they could say, well then we're not gonna let you see your sons. So even in a probate conservatorship, people can be coerced into doing things that they are technically not required by law to do. But in an LPS conservatorship, the conservator is totally legally empowered to force treatment onto their conservatee. It's the entire point. You're trying to get someone into treatment so that hopefully they can move on with the rest of their life and be a healthier member of society. These arrangements automatically expire after one year, but they can be renewed. Unlike in a probate conservatorship though, where pretty much anyone can petition to put someone into a conservatorship, only designated mental health treatment facilities, agencies, or the courts can make a referral to the public guardian for an LPS conservatorship. So since Amanda had already been in police custody, they were able to put her into an LPS conservatorship from there. Though Amanda had previously been resistant to treatment before the conservatorship was put into place, once Lima took over as her conservator, Amanda not only seemed to comply with treatment, she said that she had been enjoying it and wanted to continue treatment further.
3: All right, Amanda.
8: Hello,
1: world.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Amanda, how are you, darling?
1: Good.
8: It's another day in sobriety and recovery.
3: How long has it been now
8: um seven and a half months
3: seven and a half months you've been here
8: right seven and a half months of my sentencing but i think it's like a year now
3: almost a year because you were were a little over two months in uh, in jail right so (laughs) you've been clean for you think how long
8: i've been clean for like probably 11 or 10 months
3: yeah i think you're right um yeah and you you've the last time i interviewed you which was when you were at the other rehab and yeah
8: know. i was craving real bad no more cravings so i got it's a blessing rehab has done me well yeah
3: no you've done great in it you never tried to escape you never you know yeah got, you <laughs> no never,
8: escaping yeah you never
3: got out of control and uh, and you seem really happy
8: yeah i'm happy i mean the second it. i
3: see you you're, you're smiling and you're, <laughs> yeah yeah yep. you're cheery and talkative and everything
8: yeah i'm so glad you hooked us up with lima she feels like a mom you know i never had my mom so It feels like such a blessing just to have her in my life and just have you guys for support because I really only have my dad, so.
3: You couldn't pick somebody better than Lima.
8: Yeah, she's great. Lima's great.
1: (laughs) This was seen by many as an incredibly uplifting and triumphant story of one woman's recovery. Unfortunately, Amanda did pass away later on May 9th, 2021. We have
3: some, I don't even know what kind of news this is. What, what happened last last Mother's Day, right? Just
2: Yeah, on Mother's Day. So um, on Sunday, May 9th, um, the treatment center staff walked into Amanda's room thinking that she was just peacefully sleeping and realized that she had passed away. Um, it's been a really, really big shock for us. And... My brain hasn't really been able to comprehend it, and announcing it makes it real, so.
3: It's hard to believe.
2: It's very hard to believe. Um, and so I think uh, they, well, I know that they did an, um, a toxicology report. All she had in her system was titanol. I was actually supposed to fly in for her transfer to outpatient care, and um, she never got transferred, so she remained at residential care, so she had 24-7 supervision. Any um, foul play, mm-hmm. any self-harm, anything um, in that nature was already rolled out. So she died of um, physical, natural causes. And so um, I think it's really important to note for everybody watching that mental health, sorry. Mental health can cause physical illness And um, the time that Amanda spent on the street is the reason that she passed away. So the amount of time, the amount of traumatic brain injury that she endured, um, we were working on repairing her jaw because she was brutally beaten and raped so severely on multiple occasions and three that Larry shared with me, but there was many more that we don't even know about. So, um, All of that damage to her brain, the physical damage, aside from the mental illness, um, the abuse that she did with crack cocaine, which was very severe. Um, When we got her into the treatment center, her physical condition was so deteriorated, in my opinion, and we're still waiting for the autopsy report. That's gonna take about um, two to three months, they told us but um, Amanda was just homeless too long.
1: In December of 2021, Lima read Amanda's autopsy report on the Soft White Underbelly channel. I can't really analyze it myself. As far as I'm aware, there was nothing that could really be done. Amanda's death just wasn't preventable by the time she started treatment, and I don't see any reason to suspect foul play or anything shady about that event. But backing up on April 9th, 2021, during a video about Amanda's at-the-time recovery, Lima mentioned something that, in retrospect, is a little odd with the current arrangement.
2: All right, so Bam and Nikki Marchera, you probably know them from Jackass. They were so moved by Amanda's story that they've pledged to help support this publicly and help me fundraise for Amanda and for the scholarship to help raise more money. So in order to um, say thank you to them, our team uh, has a bunch of virtual cities in our, inside our virtual reality system. So we made a billboard for them, and that was on the Skid Row experience that we put Amanda in. Um, And if you want to check that out, that's also on Instagram with their handles as well, if you guys want to support them. But the reason that this is so incredibly significant is because Bam actually recently went to a treatment center. Um, he He went in for Adderall and alcohol, and he was very much vocal about the fact that he came out addicted to over 10 different medications.
1: That was in April of 2021. As we now know, Lima became Bam's guardian in September of 2021. And is that a little odd? Yeah. I don't know what the relationship with Lima and Bam and his wife were at the time or currently are, but... It is at least a strange coincidence, if not something quite a bit deeper, but I don't know. But there are a few talking points that I've seen around Bam's guardianship that I want to address because I think that a lot of them are kind of problematic. So for one thing, some people are taking a lot of the stuff involved in Bam's lawsuit against Paramount and the Jackass production without, I think, a proper amount of skepticism on Bam's side. So, for one thing, there was the claim that Bam was the creator of Jackass, and that's just not accurate. Bam was an original cast member and producer for the franchise, and he was the creator of the CKY video series with the CKY crew, Jeff Tremaine, the director of Jackass Forever and the director of most of the Jackass franchise, saw the CKY videos and recruited Bam and other CKY members to sign onto the prank and stunt show him, Johnny Knoxville, and Spike Jones were already planning, which would eventually become Jackass. There was a lot of footage that Bam had filmed prior to Jackass's existence that was used in later Jackass entries, But Jackass was not created by BAM. The three people consistently credited with the creation of Jackass has always been Jeff Tremaine, Spike Jones, and Johnny Knoxville. Of course, BAM was an instrumental member, and you can say that Jackass wouldn't have become as successful as it did without BAM's involvement, I wouldn't argue with that, but He wasn't the creator, and this is important because, mixed with the claim that Bam had only been fired from Jackass forever because he had taken a prescription medication that Paramount knew about prior, some people have tried to paint the picture that Bam being fired from Jackass and the subsequent guardianship he was placed in was a deliberate plan from people involved with Jackass, to steal his creation from him. Which is not only just absurd, but implying the theft of Bam's creation was a motivating factor in this guardianship sensationalizes the situation into something far more conspiratorial than it likely was. Clearly, some of the Jackass guys have had some contact with Bam and know more about the guardianship than we do, but I don't see any reason to believe they're actively a part of the guardianship, or the process of its inaction. I also saw some people challenging BAM's guardianship by saying you can't put someone into a guardianship for drug or alcohol abuse. First off, that is just factually untrue. In 2014, so it may have changed since then, but at that time there were 17 states that specifically looked at drug and alcohol addiction when deeming someone incapacitated. Even outside of those 17 states, though, substance abuse disorder is considered a mental illness. It could still possibly be a motivating factor in someone's guardianship based on that fact alone. And anyway, most people with substance abuse disorder often have comorbid mental illnesses. And in Bam's case, this argument is completely irrelevant because he's publicly admitted to having bipolar disorder. So it really doesn't matter whether or not you can put someone into a guardianship for alcohol or drug abuse. And then I've seen people making the claim that there's a conflict of interest in this case because on the court docket, Bam's residence is listed as a rehab. And so some people have tried to say that Lima Yavremovic specifically put BAM into a rehab facility that she owns or runs so that she could profit from this guardianship. And yeah, that would be a conflict of interest if Lima operated, owned, or even worked at a rehab facility, but she doesn't. She works for a company that creates software that they sell to rehab centers. Is that still a conflict of interest? Not really, as far as I can tell. The facility BAM is at may or may not be using Aura software, I couldn't see anything about it on their website, but regardless, I highly doubt that the facility's use of Aura software is contingent upon whether or not BAM is enrolled in that facility. I don't think that Aura is profiting at all from this guardianship, at least not from what I can see from the outside. As far as the fees Lima is likely paid as a guardian, I don't have any proof that she's profiting from this arrangement. I'm not saying she isn't. I'm just saying that I don't see any evidence for it, and the people that I've seen trying to claim that Lima is profiting from it are using baseless claims about her owning a rehab facility. The only thing that I really have to say about Bam Margera's guardianship is that this case is really hard to evaluate based on the small amount of information that's been made public. I don't really have evidence that Lima is an abusive guardian. People have tried to use the death of Amanda as proof that she's shady, but to me, that seems incredibly disrespectful to Amanda, because whatever you think about her death, the last thing that she said publicly was that she liked being in treatment and that she thought of Lima Yevremovic as a mother to her. I don't think that you can just rewrite her narrative because it suits your goal of painting Lima as an evil person. I've never seen any evidence of foul play in Amanda's death. Granted, I don't know enough about medicine to actually evaluate it myself, but the people that I've seen talking about it also do not have any experience in medicine. So, sorry, I don't really think any of us are qualified to say how Amanda died. Some people are so skeptical of Lima that they've publicly cast doubt on her because she changed her last name. Turns out she just got married and she addressed that backlash along with death threats she'd received in a video for Soft White Underbelly months ago, before Bam's guardianship was put in place or publicized. Now that the Free ban movement is starting to gain a small cult of followers, I definitely do not envy Lima. Her social media comments have been flooded with criticism from people that have about the same amount of information that I have on this case. And I have barely any. This is a good case to illustrate how we should and shouldn't be talking about guardianships. It is absolutely fine to be skeptical. With little oversight in these cases, we have reason to be on edge about any sort of guardianship arrangement. The whole system is rife with corruption and abuse. But, scouring for information just to villainize people involved unless we already have good reason to do so, is not the vibe. With Brittany's case, there was a lot of evidence of abuse that we could publicize. With Nichelle's case, there have been multiple people that have spoken out against her son's behavior and alleged abuse of her. It's absolutely fine to look for red flags and then publicize them when they're found, but in a case like BAM's where so much information is private, and the information that is public isn't blatantly alarming, I think it's a mistake to try to create a cast of villains in the public narrative For this one individual story when we should be advocating for broader reforms where we can be assured that there is proper oversight and accountability in every guardianship case. I don't know if Bam's guardianship is abusive or harmful to him, but I am uncomfortable by the fact that we don't have reliable institutions in place to ensure that it isn't. That's the only analysis that I can give for this. I hope someone is checking into this and making sure Bam is being given proper care. I don't have enough information to conclude anything else. And with that, let's move on to the case that has orbited Free Britney for years. When Britney Spears was finally released from her conservatorship in November of last year, there was a big media push to say that the Free Britney movement was going to be moving on to ending the conservatorship of Amanda Bynes next. While I personally would have liked to have seen more attention being put on Nichelle Nichols' case— The focus on Amanda Bynes does make sense because Amanda and Brittany have a lot of superficial similarities, especially in terms of their place in pop culture. Like Britney, Amanda was a child star who came to prominence very young in her adolescence. Now you got- you
7: started out <laughs> the same way I did. I understand that you started out at, like, the laugh factory. Right? Um, yeah. Are
2: you a
5: stand-up comedian?
2: Yeah, well, my- well, my dad saw, like, a- uh an article that, you know, kids could do a comedy camp at the Laugh Factory, right. so it was like for six weeks or something, you know, like Arsenio Hall came on, and he would like critique your act, Right. and, and Richard Pryor came on, wow. so that was really cool, he was so neat. It was so cool, I was like, wow, it was so neat to meet him, you know?
1: And like Britney had come up representing an all-American girl next door, Amanda had a pretty clean-cut image for most of her career until mental health struggles in her mid-20s pushed her into a more train wreck sort of narrative.
4: Tonight, is Amanda the new Lindsay? Wow, I hate asking that, but brand new reports say former Nickelodeon star Amanda Bynes is about to check into rehab. Sound familiar? Amanda is in a whole heap of trouble with the law lately. She's actually showing shades of a once troubled Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay herself even tweeted this. Why did I get put in jail? A Nickelodeon star has had no punishment so far.
1: Around 2012 and 2013, Amanda began experiencing a lot of legal troubles, specifically with DUIs and hit and runs, as well as an incident in which she threw a bong out of a window. But what the public was maybe even more enthralled with was Amanda's interesting presence on Twitter where she displayed symptoms of severe body dysmorphia, she called a lot of people ugly and started a lot of online feuds, and she once said that she wanted Drake to murder her vagina. And on July 23rd, 2013, Amanda was officially hospitalized on a 5150 involuntary psychiatric hold after setting fire to the driveway of an elderly woman's home.
6: Witnesses say the former child star wearing a blonde wig set fire to this driveway in Southern California Monday night.
4: Yeah, I saw
7: this girl laying down right here with her left pant leg on fire. And when I look at her,
4: I'm like, it's Amanda Bynes.
1: Following her stay at the hospital, Amanda was put into a temporary conservatorship overseen by her mother, Lynn. So there's another coincidence, too. Both Amanda and Brittany have mothers named Lynn, though they are spelled differently. But at the time, Amanda's conservatorship was only temporary. And about a year later, she was released, where she then tweeted in October of 2014 that her father had molested her as a child. She later, within hours, tweeted... My dad never did those things. The microchip in my brain made me say those things, but he's the one that ordered them to microchip me. Now, I wanna make it very clear right here that I do not think that it's appropriate to speculate on whether or not the previous allegation is true. Amanda recanted that accusation within hours, And even her recantation indicates that she was not in a stable mind frame when she was tweeting. She believed that her father had placed a microchip in her brain. Obviously, I do think we should believe victims, but when they say something and then a few hours later say that there is a microchip in their brain, that does indicate that... They are not in a place where they're thinking rationally. So, I'm not going to take everything they say on the day as unquestionable fact. And honestly, even if the allegations are true, Amanda took what she said back, and if Amanda doesn't feel comfortable discussing something publicly, I don't think that we should feel so comfortable speculating on it publicly. If Amanda comes forward in the future and does say that something like this happened to her, I will absolutely hear her out and believe her. But until then, I'm gonna go with the last thing that Amanda said publicly, and that is that those allegations were not true. I'm not gonna really believe the microchip part, though, admittedly. But I think that's reasonable. After this Twitter rant, though, Amanda was placed back into a conservatorship, this time permanent, still overseen by her mother. And her mother, by the way, is still married to Amanda's father, so I have to assume that they both have some involvement with Amanda's day-to-day care. And this is what I want to say about Amanda's overall case. It gets compared pretty often to Britney Spears. And since Britney's situation is a huge part of a lot of people's baseline understanding of the issue of conservatorships, I don't think that's totally unfair. But I do think that there's a little bit of an oversensationalization of Amanda's case, just based off of what fans know about Britney's abuse, that I think can get a little bit irresponsible when perpetuated. In a lot of ways, Amanda's conservatorship isn't quite as alarming from an outside perspective as Britney's. For one thing, while Britney was essentially banned from discussing her conservatorship publicly, Amanda did at least once address hers on her Instagram account.
7: Hey y'all, I want to say thank you guys so much for your support. The fact that you've been rooting for me for years means more than you know. Today I want to talk about a controversial topic, my conservatorship case. I have been going to a treatment center that charges $5,200 a month. There's no reason why I shouldn't go to a therapist who takes my insurance for $5,000 less a month. This is why I've asked to see the judge next week regarding this conservatorship issue. Thank you guys so much for hearing me out. I'm sorry that this is what I'm dealing with, and I'm sorry to put my problems onto the internet, but this is what life has come to. So thank you guys so much for always supporting me. Love you all. Peace out. Appreciate your love and support.
1: Love you guys. Bye. I do still find it alarming that Amanda felt the need to take to Instagram to address something that should be a pretty easy fix in the court. It does make me think that Amanda's opinion isn't being taken into account as much as I would hope that it should be, but I also don't know the details of the treatment she's talking about, and maybe the one that costs more money is actually better for her. I'm not sure. Overall, though, I'm at least glad to see that Amanda's social media isn't being maintained in the same way that it appeared Britney's was during her conservatorship. Amanda is at least allowed to occasionally say things that challenge her parents and the court system. And for another thing, Amanda's been retired from the entertainment industry since the conservatorship started. She did two interviews throughout its time and sometimes talked about getting back into acting, but for the most part, she's only discussed her time in school and her studies to be a fashion designer. Amanda still has a pretty lucrative estate just from her past success alone that may have been exploited or may still be being exploited, but the human trafficking lens that we can look at Britney's situation through doesn't really seem appropriate here. We have evidence that Britney was coerced into performing labor that financially benefited her conservators, but Amanda hasn't held down a job that I know of, so I don't think that her labor is being used in the same way. Also, of course, we can't know what happens privately or just within someone's head, but going off public behavior and public statements alone, Amanda did exhibit symptoms of a severe mental illness more so than Britney. Britney was 5150'd for locking herself in a bathroom. Amanda was 5150'd for setting a stranger's driveway on fire. There are moments in which she was clearly a danger to herself or others. Now, does that mean that Brittany's conservatorship was bad and Amanda's conservatorship is good? No. I still have a lot of criticisms of how Amanda's parents have conducted themselves and the fact that these were the people the probate court decided to entrust Amanda's life with in the first place. I'm not saying Amanda's parents are evil, but in the midst of Amanda's breakdown, she did publicly denounce them and indicated that they had a strained relationship. Whether or not that was on valid ground, though I kind of instinctively think that it might have been just due to my own bias against the parents of child stars, Amanda clearly did not feel fully comfortable with her parents. Maybe that was just a result of her mental illness making her paranoid or having her suffer delusions that made her parents seem more harmful than they were. But nonetheless, Amanda did clearly feel some amount of distress around her parents and was not fully comfortable with them, so I don't really know that it was productive for her mental health for her to be forced into a situation with those people. There's also the issue of how Amanda's conservatorship in 2014 got put into place in the first place. So, during that time, another figure from the Britney Spears story makes an appearance in Amanda's life. That is Sam Lutfi, the former manager, in quotes, of Britney Spears, who was alleged to have abused her for a majority of 2007. He also has restraining orders against him from Courtney Love and other people. He's an all-around shady dude, but in November of 2014, he apparently contacted Amanda and convinced her to sue her parents. He then got her to fly to LA so that he could hook her up with a lawyer, and this is what TMZ writes in an article around that time. Here's what Amanda didn't know. Lutfi was secretly working with Amanda's parents, and it was all an elaborate ruse to lure her out so doctors could place her on an involuntary psychiatric hold. We now have more clarification as to how Lutfi pulled it off. He told Amanda her car would be making two stops, first to the lawyer's office in Pasadena, then to the London Hotel in West Hollywood where she would confront her parents and tell them about the lawsuit. She never got to London because the driver went to a Pasadena hospital, which looked like an office building. Amanda thought she was going to see the lawyer, but when she walked inside, she was surrounded by hospital staff. This was right after Amanda tweeted the thing about the microchip, so I won't argue that she did need psychiatric help. But when she was clearly already experiencing a break from reality in which she thought a microchip was placed into her brain, how was it helpful to break her trust so severely and continue to disrupt her sense of security by tricking her into an involuntary hospital stay? That doesn't seem productive for Amanda's mental health at all, and the idea that Amanda's parents were in on this with Sam Lutfi Tells me that they're not qualified to oversee Amanda's decisions. Going on, Lynn Bynes told E! News shortly after the conservatorship was put into place quote, Amanda has no mental illness whatsoever. She has never been diagnosed as schizophrenic or bipolar. Lynn went on to imply that Amanda's only issue was her dependence on marijuana. In later interviews, Amanda herself would imply that marijuana usage, along with her use of Adderall, was the primary motivator behind all of her erratic behavior. And I'm sorry, but as someone who is prescribed stimulants and uses marijuana frequently, that is absolute bullshit. I'm obviously aware that those substances can affect someone's decision-making abilities, but they are not on their own going to make someone think that there's a microchip in their brain or cause them to set a neighbor's driveway on fire. It's just not going to happen. There was clearly an underlying mental health issue that Lynn Bynes is just completely denying. It's maybe possible that she was purposefully lying just to save Amanda some sort of embarrassment or something, and trying to dispel any diagnoses that were public. But in that case, just don't talk to E! News, period. I don't know why she thought that was appropriate in the first place. You don't need to discuss your daughter's or your conservatee's mental health to fucking entertainment news. In the same article from E! News, Lynn's attorney actually said that Amanda currently is on zero medication. She's devoted to living her life as healthy as possible. She's never had a history of abusing alcohol or hard drugs, and she's proud to say she's been marijuana-free for the past nine months. And like, really, what kind of reefer madness paranoia is that? Some people do have an issue with marijuana usage, absolutely. But pinning all of Amanda's mental health problems onto weed, a drug that's never been known to make a stable person act in the way that Amanda had been acting publicly, shows me that these people in charge of Amanda's life just don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And yeah, medication isn't a savior for everyone with mental health struggles, But I'm weary about the back-to-back sentences about being medication-free and being devoted to a healthy lifestyle because it feels like there's an implication that a medication-free treatment plan is inherently the healthier option. Which, with behavior as alarming as Amanda's, is often not the case. Still, the even bigger issue to me is the fact that these people are giving statements to entertainment media outlets at all. And that's a problem that keeps going. So, in February of 2020, Amanda announced that she was engaged. Following that announcement, there were multiple reports from sources close to Amanda saying her parents were not going to allow her to get married under the conservatorship, a decision that absolutely should not have been made public. Amanda's attorney, David Escobias, who I'm not sure, by the way, if he's a court-appointed attorney or not, I'm assuming he is, he also told E! News again, This guy purports to love Amanda and be a source of emotional support, but it appears to me he is selling access to her to the paparazzi. In what world is it appropriate for someone's attorney to publicly bash their fiancé to e-fucking-news. Like, what is wrong with these people? Just don't say anything. The following month, in March of 2020, Amanda announced that she was pregnant via an ultrasound picture on Instagram. Days later, TMZ reported that Amanda's parents were not going to allow Amanda to have custody of the child once it was born, but had yet to tell Amanda. So that statement was apparently made to people at TMZ before it was made to Amanda herself, who had already announced the pregnancy on Instagram. A little while after that, Amanda's attorney stated that she was not pregnant and he didn't clarify if she ever was pregnant, so I'm not going to speculate into that at all. But it's still incredibly suspicious to me that when Amanda announces something, the people around her in her camp then publicly contradict her to the point where it's like, you could just not talk. You could just not make any statements and you could just shut up. So truly, shame on the court that's overseeing this conservatorship for putting people this stupid in charge of anyone else's life. Amanda has recently petitioned to eliminate her conservatorship, and I'll be interested to see how everything goes with that, but I think that that is the best note to end this off on. because. While I don't have any reason to believe that Amanda's parents are evil or that they mean her harm, they are clearly not responsible enough to be in the position that they've been legally empowered to inhabit, and that's still pretty bad. Throughout this episode, we've seen all sorts of cases, some in which a conservatorship appeared to benefit its ward, some where it appeared to not and somewhere there may have been some noble intentions, but ultimately left the person within the arrangement in a compromised position. The fact that so much variation is able to exist amongst cases when people's literal civil rights are at stake means we've got a lot of reforming of this system to do. At some point, I'll probably do a follow-up on this episode and try to get deeper into the weeds about systemic changes we might want to aim for, but until then, I've talked about this bullshit enough. Go figure out your advanced healthcare plan so you don't have to get stuck in a guardianship against your will, and I'll see you next week for a different topic entirely. Bye!